This morning we're going to be talking about one of people's favorite topics, the wrath of God. It's all what you get come to church to hear about, right? But no, we're going to be talking about that and putting it in the context of Paul's letter to the Romans. So we started a series on this a couple of weeks ago. Paul was this man who was overcome by the goodness and the love of God. And because of this goodness and love that God demonstrated to him, he felt compelled, called, chosen to share this goodness, this gospel, this good news with the world. And so he wrote one of the ways that he did this was he traveled, but he also wrote letters and shared this. And so the letter to the Romans is this letter to this church in Rome, this gathering of people who followed Jesus and we're learning what it meant to look like to follow Jesus. And so he sent the letter for a number of different reasons. He sent it to introduce himself, to share about who he was and his teaching. He sent it to share about a missionary journey that he was going on. And he also sent this letter to this church in Rome to help them deal with some issues that were going on. Because there was some splits, some conflict within the church. And it revolved a lot around these two groups that Paul names later in the letter as the weak and the strong. And this wasn't about physical strength. It was about the way they saw each other. And the, the weak were probably this group that tended to follow the Jewish laws, and they thought that everyone should be following these. And so they looked down on others and thought, if you're not following the laws, then you're not really a follower of Jesus. And then there was this other group, the strong. They realized they didn't have to follow all those laws but they looked at these other people and they despised them. They were condescending towards them because they think, don't you know you don't have to follow these laws? And so there was this push back and forth about who was better. And so Paul's writing this letter in part to help them understand and resolve these differences and to see that they're on this same place. And he's opened the letter with this proclamation of this gospel, the good news. And that's what we've called this series, the gospel of God, the good news of God. And the gospel is a proclamation. It's an announcement that Jesus Christ is the crucified, resurrected, and reigning and saving king. He's the one who's come to restore all things. And he's gone through this whole thing in the first 17 verses. And at the end of it, he's talked about, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, because of the power of God that brings salvation. And so he's announced that this gospel announcement and God's power saves us. But the question is, saves us from what? And so that's where this next part comes in. in. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, which is really, it's a part of a bigger unit. And one of the challenges sometimes when we're studying the Bible is we tend to break it down into little pieces and we like to study this verse and this little part of it. But 1, 18 really is a part of this, through 32 is a part of a larger unit that goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. But that's a lot to cover in one Sunday, so we're going to take a little part of it. But it all boils down to this big argument, and spoiler for the next couple of weeks, and the big argument is basically, we're all sinners. We're all under the power of sin. And that's where he's getting at here. But as we're reading this section, we want to keep in mind this bigger picture, that part of what Paul is doing is dealing with this division, this strong and this weak group, and trying to fit it in and trying to address them. And so he's kind of helping set these people up. Because if you have two groups of people who both think they're better than the other, Paul's larger argument in this opening chapters is to say, no, you're not. 
You're not better than that group, and you're not better than that group. And so that's part what he's doing here. He's getting them set up. He's, he's helping them, and so we're going to see how he does that here. One of the other things I want to just, as we get ready to dive into it, is just realize this section isn't primarily about sexuality. Sometimes we look at Romans 1 and this 18 through 32 and think, well, it's all about this. It's a part of the argument, but it's not all of it. It helps us with our theology of sexuality, but that's not today's focus. And so I want us to pay attention to that. That's not, and if we get caught on like, oh, this is what Paul's focused on, we miss that big picture. So let's dive into it. So Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so the wrath of God. So when you think of the wrath of God, what do you think of? Like fire raining down from heaven maybe, whatever. But wrath is more than emotions. It's not just God being mad at things. It's not just like, oh, I, I can't believe you did that. It's not just God smashing down. But it's about His judgment. And if what a part of what He's getting at is that our actions have consequences. So, the beginning of the Bible teaches that we are image bearers, that we are created in the image of God. In other words, we are created to reflect God's goodness. And so, if God is the creator who made us to reflect His goodness and to show what He's like, part of it is to say, how does God respond when we're not doing that? When we're not being what we were created to be? And so His wrath is this proper response to the fact that we've marred His image. But it's not just angry God, and it's even the language there is, if you notice, it said the wrath of God is being revealed, which is the same language that it's talked about earlier, where it's talked about the righteousness of God is revealed. And so what we're doing is we're, we're seeing it, God is revealing it. The word there is apocalypto, it's, it's apocalypsed. And apocalypse we usually think of as the end of the world, but apocalypse is just it's revealed to us. And so what I would invite us to do is when we come with our idea of what the wrath of God looks like is to see what Paul tells us the wrath of God looks like. Because we may have an idea of what the wrath of God looks like. And I haven't heard it this time, but I know I was, when we were praying, we were thinking about the hurricanes coming on to Florida and, and Puerto Rico and much of these. And I remember a number of years ago where there were some of these things like hurricanes and stuff, and there were several prominent television preachers who talked about this being the wrath of God being poured out on our nation because of what we're doing. And that's sometimes what we think of the wrath of God, the wrath of God or God sending floods or, or judgment. And sometimes that's what the wrath of God looks like. But here Paul says, this is how the wrath of God is revealed. And we'll see what the, how the wrath of God plays out. But I also want you to notice in that verse, it says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness. Notice that the wrath of God isn't revealed as going against people, but the wrath of God is revealed against the sins. The wrath is directed against the sin and not the sinners. Those aren't the, these words aren't, in fact, the word sin and sinner doesn't even show up in here. But it's the wrath of God revealed against these things. And so, what is it real, revealed against? These two words, godlessness and wickedness. Those both sound pretty bad, right? Well, godlessness is the sense of living without reference to God. Or one writer, he says, it's living in an ungodded world. 
In other words, it's going through the world without a sense of God. And wickedness is really a sense of unrighteous injustice. It matches up. So if we have the righteousness or the justice of God revealed, then the wrath of God is being revealed against everything that's counter to that, against injustice and things. And so one broad way to think of it is this picture of idolatry, and we'll see how that plays out, that idols are the main focus of it. And so he goes on in verses 19 through 20, and he says this, he says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And so Paul's painting this picture, he's saying, what God is like is clear. If you just look around the world, you can see that God is powerful, and that He has called a world to order. And so he's making this point that everyone is accountable. We can't say, well, I never heard about it. And this is where Paul's getting at. He's saying, no one can make the claim they don't understand what God is talking about because God's revealed His nature through the world around us. But then he goes on and he starts to talk about this picture of, he says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And truth is, Idolatry is kind of a hard thing to understand for us. I mean, we don't think about it. And so I'm going to read that passage again. He says, he says this, and starting in verse 21, he says, For though they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds, and animals, and reptiles. And so for people in the ancient world, they would have known what idols looked like. Every city, every small town had idols set up, these statues that were representations of the gods, and people knew that you worship this god to have a child. You made a sacrifice to this guy to get a good uh, investment. You made a sacrifice to this god to make your, your plants grow. And so they had an idea of what this is, but For our world, we think, well, what's that like? I don't understand what idolatry looks like because we don't go down the street and see giant golden statues set up. But what Paul is getting at here is idolatry isn't just something that was a problem 2,000 years ago. Idolatry is something that happens today. And what he's getting at is this idea of exchange, and that word shows up a couple times here. And so, they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like God. Or He says in Psalm 106, it's written, it says, they exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. And so, it's this picture, speaking back to this Old Testament story where the people of God, they knew what God was like, but they chose a golden calf or a bull instead of God. And so, what I want us to think about is idolatry is an exchange where putting something in place of God. We're pledging our allegiance to something other than God. When we abandon God, something else moves in. And so an idol, I guess in short what we can say is an idol is anything we look to for what only God can give. And so here when the people of God are, when He's describing, they're saying they've exchanged the glory of God. They've exchanged only what is due to God and they've exchanged only what can, only God can give for something else. 
Let's make it a little more practical. Think about it. When we look to God, we look to God for hope, love, peace, all these things that He can provide. And when we look to an idol, we're looking to something else that can give us those things. And so one way to think of it, I think, is in broad categories. When we think of idols and maybe helping identify our idols, we put them into two broad categories. Idols, some idols we look to to give us control and others give us meaning or significance. And so if we think about those ancient idols, they would look to some idols to control what was going on and others to give them significance. And the thing about idolatry is the things that become idols aren't in and of themselves necessarily bad. But the problem is when the exchange happens. When we begin to trade something in. When we want freedom from God, but we... And God says, okay, fine. And that's kind of how the wrath of God... You notice what he, the language there is. He says, though they claim to be wise, and then it says, therefore what? God gave them over. And so they're looking for freedom from God. They say, God, we don't need you. I got this, God. And God says, okay. Let's see how that works out for you. And what happens is then those idols enslave us. They begin to control us. When we assist on our own way, God lets the folly run its course. So a couple of weeks ago, I talked about Lord of the Rings. So we're going to go back to Lord of the Rings here. And so in the Lord of the Rings, the main part is there's this one ring, the one ring of power. And this ring of power offers the one who wears it the ability to change things. And you think, wow, that would be great. And so there are several times in the course of the books where a hero is offered the chance to have the ring, and they dream about what this ring can do. They think about, well, if I had this ring, I could bring order and justice. I could rule over and we could do great things and we could have this wonderful and powerful place to live. But what they ultimately and most of the heroes who pass up the chance to have the ring do is recognizes what the ring does is it offers that ability. It offers that hope of if you have this, you can do great things. But when you take the ring, the ring enslaves you and twists you and holds you. And that's what sin does to us. Sin and idolatry offer up these opportunities. These hopes say, if you have this, look at what it can do. But then when we say, okay, I'll take that, it begins to enslave us and hold on to us. And what Paul is describing here is say, this is what sin does. We insist on our own way, and so God gives it over. And the ultimate thing that happens is we destroy ourselves. And so he gives that description of they give over their sinful desires and it becomes degrading to their bodies and their shameful lusts. And so it destroys this picture of who we are. And so Tim Keller has an excellent book on this called Counterfeit Gods and he talks about the picture of these things. And so I want us to think about, kind of bury it, or bring it down a little closer. What do these idols look like and how they might distort our humanity? And so let's think about romantic love, and how that can become an idol. And so again, what does an idol do? It can give us control or it can give us meaning or significance. Maybe you've been this way, maybe you know somebody who does it, who thinks that if they just find the right person in life, if they just find that true love, then life is going to go great for them. 
I mean, that's the plot line of half the movies that are out, right? Of, like, there's that one person out there, you know, the, the rom-com, you complete me, right? That you make me whole. I, and so there's this picture of the way that we do this, and so romantic love becomes this idea, and so it becomes an idol because then what happens is that begins to control a person, and they think that if they can only find this one person, if they can find that true love, then their meaning, their life will be complete, and they'll have meaning, and they'll have significance, and they will be affirmed and loved. But what does that idol of romantic love, it begins to enslave them. So if you believe that that's the one thing that can give you meaning and significance, you begin to set everything aside to pursue that one thing. And you become desperate and you think, well, if I don't have that, and it takes over and it leads to fear and self-loathing because when you don't find that one person, what starts to happen is you start to look at yourself and you think, well, maybe I'm not worthy. Maybe I'm not deserving of love. Or you become anger and bitter and you start to think, look at all these people. I'm a really good person. How come nobody loves me? Can't they see how wonderful and amazing I am? And you see what has happened is just as Paul has described here in this issue of sexuality. The idol, the god of romantic love has enslaved them. They've begun to pursue this thing. And notice what we said. Romantic love in and of itself isn't a bad thing. But when it becomes... A bad thing is when we exchange the truth of God for a lie because the truth of God says that what we need ultimately is a relationship with God. We exchange that for the lie of what I really need is somebody else to complete me. And so we begin to pursue that and then that idol of romantic love begins to enslave us and it begins to control us. Or the reverse happens like, I don't need love. I'm good all by myself. And so there becomes this sense of bitterness, this sense of resentment, and, and people begin to hold themselves off. Sexuality is one that Paul specifically mentions here. And he mentions it in the context of homosexual relationships, but we can expand that beyond them. When sexuality, when the desire for the sexual becomes an idol and begins to enslave us, we know this by the fact that the pornography industry in the United States outsells and outpaces nearly everything else. That the combined, the income in the pornography industry exceeds that of the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and the major networks all combined. That's the amount of money spent that videos, millions of videos are posted every single day because there's this craving for sexual desire. And it's become a, an idol that somehow if I have this ultimate sexual life that, that I'll be fulfilled, that I'll have something. And years ago, there were some people having a discussion with C.S. Lewis and they were challenging me. They said, well, sexuality, it's just an appetite. No different than food or whatever. And he says, Really? And he went on and he said, now imagine if we were all sitting in a room and we gathered around a cake covered with a blanket and slowly the blanket was taken off and people were wondering and peering at the cake and the cake was slowly revealed and people were throwing down their money to see a little bit more of the cake. Would we not think that their appetite for food was severely distorted? He said, that is exactly what we have done 
with sexuality. We've let this healthy thing that God has given, God created male and female to be together in the beginning, but it's become this distortion. And so people have this idea that this will be their role of fulfillment, and it begins to enslave them, whereas Paul says he he gives them over. And they degrade themselves, and so people begin to do things that degrade their vision. They begin to degrade other people too. That much of the pornographic industry, much of it is related to violence against women. And so there's this idea of like when we are enslaved by this, we're degrading not only ourselves by viewing this, but we're degrading the others who are participating in it. We're degrading the image of God in these other people because we're seeing them simply as an object to be used. And so Paul is getting at this point here. He says, this is the nature of sin. This is the wrath of God where we begin to say, what I need is sex to fulfill me. And God says, fine, have it. And what happens is it ends up destroying us. Or maybe it's money. The quest for money. We talk about that often as an idol because money or success, we can put those two things together. Again, money can give us control and it can give us significance. And so we think of, if I only had enough money. And it's funny how that, what enough money looks like. Because what we find is for most of us, enough is always just a little more than whatever we have. That if you make $40,000 a year right now and next year you started making $60,000 a year, you might say, well, you know, if I just make a little bit more. And then if magically the next year you're making $100,000, my guess is you'd probably be saying, if I just had a little bit more. Because one of the things that we do is we tend to compare ourselves with those around us. We look around and we see the people next to us. We don't necessarily see it in a worldwide picture, but we see, like, if I just had a little bit more. And so money becomes this idol. And Jesus specifically talks about it. He says, you can't serve God in money. He describes money as a God because what money does is it enslaves us. He says, if I just had a little bit more, then I could have control of my life. And the question I would ask does having more money actually give you control in life? I mean, we can see as we talk again about floods down in parts of Florida or in Puerto Rico or wherever, does money protect from those things? Or in the end, when those things are gone, was it enough to give people control? Were the people who had more money than others safe from the hurricane magically because they had a little bit more money? Were they able to control those things? Or... Having enough money doesn't control a lot of what goes on in life. Money doesn't control our ability to deal with disease or with death. And so what it does is it begins to distort our humanity again, and that's what Paul says here. He says, when we do this, we exchange the glory of God and our hearts become darkened. In other words, we're designed to reflect the glory of God, but when we give ourselves to an idol, when we turn ourselves over to that, it's distorted. And who we are, our very humanity is distorted. We tend to think of sins as just something we do. We do bad stuff. I did some bad stuff. I broke some rules. But what Paul wants us to see is sin is a capital S power that enslaves us and controls us and distorts who we are. 
Maybe you've known, knew that person growing up and you thought, I don't really, they were, man, that was a good guy. She was, I really liked her. And then as life went on, that person gave themselves to the pursuit of money or power. And you meet them 10, 15, 20 years later and you're like, who is this person? Because all of a sudden, everyone around them becomes simply a tool for them to gain more money. And so it's distorted their humanity or success becomes power and success becomes a God because we think of power and success as a way to give us meaning and significance. Think, oh, if I just had my 10 minutes of fame, if I had my 15 minutes of fame, if I could just go viral with this video, if I could just do these things, then I would really have some meaning in life. And then the first one happens and then we think, well, well okay, that goes away. And then we look for the next one. And then we begin to distort our humanity because we begin to believe that that's what makes us valuable or important. And so power and success become an idol because they, they give this illusion that if we have those things, if we attain those things, we will be valued. We will have value and people will see us and love us. But what happens is, what happens when those things fade away? When you reach that pinnacle and then it's gone. And what goes with it is that picture of meaning and significance that you attach to that idol. And so the idol has sold you something. It's sold you this idea that if you just have this, then you will have meaning and significance. That if you gain this status, if you gain this level of fame, if you gain those things, you will have meaning and significance. But then the fame and significance says, no, you really don't. And in the meantime, you've distorted humanity because you've stepped over people, you've stepped on people, you've lied about who you are, all to create an image so that you can gain those things which ultimately turn out to be empty. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He says, when their foolish hearts were darkened and they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for other things. And what God is saying here is that's the only way to find this goodness and this glory, to truly reflect what humanity looks like, is to find all those things in who we are, in, in, in who God says we are. One last one is ideologies. We see this today in our world so much where we, we, we attach ourselves maybe to a particular political party or an ideology, or Tim Keller puts it this way in his book. He says, and he compares it, he says, in Marxism, the powerful state becomes the savior and capitalists are demonized. Then he goes on, in conservative economic thought, free markets and competition will solve all our problems, and therefore liberals and governments are the obstacles to a happy society. You see, what Keller is getting at there is partly this idea of when we make idols of ideologies, whatever that ideology is, what does it tend to do? It tends to say, that's the way to really make our nation great again. That's the way to solve the problems of our society. That's the way to fix the world around us. And that ideology becomes a God because we believe that's the solution to all the problems of the world. Well, what happens if you believe that's the solution to all the problems? Anybody else who doesn't believe that is against the solutions to the problem. Therefore, they become the enemy. Therefore, they become demons. Therefore, the image of God is degraded in them. Keller's not suggesting that we don't have an ideology. 
Keller's not suggesting that one is right and the other is always wrong. What Keller is suggesting here is that we let the ideology become an idol because it begins to govern everything and all our choices get filtered through that. So what's the wrath of God? The wrath of God is the consequences. This depraved mind, this exchange that happens. And so it goes down later in area. He says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile, this is verse 28, think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. So this idolatry leads to this big picture, and then he goes on. I mean, it's like, they've become filled with wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Whew. These are not good people. And we think, yeah, amen, those people are horrible out there. And that's what Paul is doing with us. Remember I said he's setting something up because he's inviting his readers, this group of people, to start thinking and listening to this. And he's saying, yeah, that's them out there. And what he's about to do is say, It's not just them out there, it's us here. Because that's what he's trying to do here. He says, this is the main concern is, this is the picture of the human predicament. And he's inviting us to see ourselves in this. What he's inviting us to do is, as we read this, it's tempting to start reading this and begin to think of all the other people. Because here's the funny thing about people, self-included. As we talk about idols and the things that people hold, it's really easy to spot the idols that other people have. It's usually pretty easy to spot the flaws in other people. And stuff. It's a little harder when we look at ourselves. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's starting to flip it around. He's starting to, and he's getting, and we'll get to that in a couple weeks as in the next two weeks as we're looking at this. And that's what he's kind of setting the people up. He's setting the church up, and he's in, almost envisioning Phoebe as she's reading this, and the people are going, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And you hear the people in the congregation go, oh, amen. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Oh, amen. Yes, those people out there, they're gossip, slanders, God haters. Oh, amen, preacher, go give it to them. And what Paul's going to do next week is go, boop. It's all of us. And that's even what he's doing here. He says, this isn't just the people out there. This is the human condition where we have this human condition where we take the glory of God and what God has given to us and we exchange it for something else. We look for glory in something else. We distort God's glory. We try and give it. And it's an invitation to see ourselves. And ultimately, what he says is this predicament leads to death. Living death now, this death this slavery to sin, and eternal death. He's saying this is not the glory for which we were created. He's painting this picture and said, this isn't the glory for which God made people to do something. This isn't the glory for which we were created. And what Paul is also setting up is for this solution, we need more than just forgiveness. We need more than encouragement to start again. We need more than a not guilty declaration. What we need is what was revealed earlier is the power of God that brings salvation. We need something to undo the exchange to set us free. 
Because when we're enslaved to the power of these idols, when we're distorting our own humanity and the humanity of other people, we don't just need God to say, it's okay. What we need is God to set us free and break that power. And that's what he said at the beginning. He says, go back to last week, for in the gospel, the righteous, or he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation. Salvation is forgiveness. It's a declaration of righteousness. It's a declaration of goodness. But salvation is also a rescue from these powers that enslave us. Because if I'm dealing with an idolatry to success, if I'm dealing with where I'm distorting my sexuality, where I'm dealing this, I need more than God to just come and say, you're forgiven. It's okay, Carl. I forgive you. What do I really need? I need to be rescued from that. I need to be brought free. And that's what Paul spells out in the rest of the letter of the Romans is this power of the Spirit to not just give forgiveness. It's that. But more than that, to break us free from that power of sin, to live, to be who we were created to be, fully made in the image of God, reflecting His goodness and glory. We need to be rescued. And so it's a part, it's a rhetorical trap. It's a way to see ourselves but as we prepare for the communion table, and we think, well, we walk away and say, wow, I see myself in all of this. I see where I've exchanged the glory of God for something else. I see the idols in my life. I see the way I'm distorting others. We don't end there because Paul goes on later in the letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Actually, verse 6, he says, You see that at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, which is exactly that same word that he's used here. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against what? All the godlessness or the ungodly and wickedness of people. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person or a just person. And so what we see is that though we may be that kind of person, Though we may see ourselves in Romans 1, though we may see this picture of how we've distorted humanity, that's exactly the kind of person that Jesus died for. And so as we come to the communion table, we're reminded of that, that this is the righteousness, the salvation of God, the justice of God revealed, that though we exchanged the glory of God for idols, though we did all these other things, that's, that's the kind of people that Jesus died for. People like us, people like me, who've exchanged the goodness of God for other things. And so it may be tempted to end there on the bad news, say, oh. So what did Pastor talk about on Sunday? Oh, the wrath of God. I'm a horrible person and God's handing me over to everything. That's just part of the story. But the story doesn't end there, because the story ends as Paul proclaims this gospel. And notice what Paul has done here. Just go back to this big picture. Where does Paul start? Paul doesn't start with Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18 implies what? That there's 17 verses before it. Paul doesn't start with saying, like, look at how wicked. Paul starts with the gospel, the good news that God comes and gives justice and righteousness and provides salvation. Paul starts with the good news and then tells us why we need that good news and then comes back to the good news again. 
And so let's leave here today remembering that that good news, that the righteousness of God is revealed and that the power of God brings salvation. The power of God brings rescue from those idols. The power of God will break us free from that slavery. And so let us proclaim that good news, that the power of God breaks us free from all these idols. Amen.